This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Okay, so uh, this evening we're going to be reflecting on the Screwtape Letters together. My lecture is called Understanding C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. Part two, The Many Roads to Unreality. Uh, Part one was last term, and Lord willing, part three will be next term. (laughs) Um, And I will give a little bit of a a running start, sort of a little bit of a recap of the first lecture, just so that um, those of you who weren't weren't there, weren't here, um, can get a sense of what uh, what that was about. You could also listen to it uh, on our podcast. But um, Screwtape Letters... Whoops. Screwtape Letters uh, is one of my favorite books. Um, it's something that I come back to again and again uh, over the years. It's extremely thought-provoking, um, entertaining at times, troubling at times. It's... Lewis's best-selling book and most widely read book after the Chronicles of Narnia. The Chronicles of Narnia were, the, were you know, the, the most successful by far, but the next on the list was the Screwtape Letters. And I found that anecdotally to be true of the people that come through the Brie and the people I talk to. A uh, huge number of people have read the Screwtape Letters that haven't read much other Lewis. Uh, it is an epistolary work just for the literature buffs. simply means it's a book made up of letters. Uh, the letters are from a senior demon to a junior demon about how to lead a particular man who's called the patient uh, away from God and towards hell and so it's a little bit like a photographic negative you think of a a photographic negative whoops that's not a photographic negative that's just C.S. Lewis there he is um where all the darks are light and all the lights are dark. It's a reversal. So uh, because the letters are from a demon's perspective, everything is backwards. Um, Christian virtues are spoken of as dangerous and pernicious, uh, while vices are overall desirable. To screw tape a person's salvation means they are lost. And if a person is damned, they are safe below. So God is always referred to as the enemy throughout all the letters. So so you just need to get used to the fact that whenever you see the enemy, it's, it's referring to, to God. And so it takes a little getting used to, 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 to understand what's going on, but not a lot. It, it's pretty pretty clear. I'm going to do just a, 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 a blitz through some of the things I talked about uh, during the first lecture. And and then we'll move on with our topic tonight, uh, the many roads to unreality. But uh, yeah, last time we talked a bit about how the, the Screwtape Letters is a reminder of the reality of the supernatural. We talk about 
the reality of the supernatural at Libri a lot. Um, that there actually really is an unseen world. God is invisible but absolutely real. What happens in the unseen world, in the spiritual world, uh, is closely connected to everything we see in, in the physical reality we see around us. So God is real, but so is the devil. And Lewis is not naive to this, and, and really what he's just what he's depicting in the screw tape letters is a war. There's a war going on uh, in the world, but also in the human heart. And the the war is going on in the human heart in the context of the screw tape letters. That that's that the battleground of the screw tape letters. Um, in his introduction to the screw tape letters, Lewis warns about the danger of not believing in the devils. To disbelieve in the devil, he says, gives the devil freedom to act unchallenged. Uh, it means to be unguarded. It means that all kinds of things can be going on and you don't have any idea. But also, in the same introduction, Lewis warns against the dangers of taking too intense an interest in the demonic. This is kind of the, the unwholesome fascination of the magician, someone that that is seeking spiritual power uh, and he says this is just as disastrous as not believing in the demons at all <clears throat> and he talks about it quite a bit screw tape kind of talks about this quite a bit throughout the book but Lewis's Lewis's goal is not to plant a fascination in us about demonic things his, his goal is to have not do that he really doesn't want to do that um, and I think I think he succeeds actually in an interesting way Okay, so that was that was we talked about that a bit. Um, we also spent some time talking about what kind of literature is this? What are we looking at when we pick up the screw tape letters? Uh, yes, demons are real, but the screw tape letters is a work of fiction. <laughs> uh, screw tape is a fictional character. It's not as if Lewis had some special vision of the inner workings of hell and he wrote it down or anything like that. Um, it's fiction, but it's true fiction in the sense that he's engaging with. Uh, realities truthfully the the nature of evil the nature of sin the nature of self-deception human self-deception and indirectly throughout he's engaging with the goodness and authority of God and so there's lots of true things in the, in the screw table letters even though it is a, a clearly a work of fiction many of the things screw tape says are true he's a spirit and he sees a reality that human beings are blind to for instance, the church is, is you know, the, the church universal is an abstraction to, to us. None of us sees the church universal. We have no idea really what the, but to screw tape, he sees it. And it's a scary thing to him. So he, in some ways, he has, he has a, a, a better grip of reality uh, than the human. Uh, but screw tape is also a liar. So many of the things he says are not true uh, or not completely true. And so when you read the screw tape letters, it's important to remember it's an example of an unreliable narrator. You can't really trust him, but he's the only narrator you have. So that, that's what an unreliable narrator does. You, it's the only perspective that you have, but you, can't, but you know you can't quite trust that perspective. So it forces you to, to, to think critically as you read. Uh, in addition to being fictional, the screw tape letters is a work of satire. And so satire is uh, a literary form which basically mock, exaggerates something in order to mock it. Um, and Lewis's goal is to mock the pride and folly of the devil. 
uh, to make the devil look absurd. So he portrays Screwtape as pompous, self-deceived, self-important, ridiculous in many ways. While he is intelligent and, and scary, he's woefully blind about some very obvious things. He's a bully, but he's also afraid without admitting it. And so, you know, it's both. He's both a sinister character and a ridiculous character at once. So it's satirical fiction, but also there is a subtext, a theological subtext throughout the whole book as well. The character, the love, the goodness, the victory of God sort of shine through the whole book indirectly because God is the enemy, right? Um, because Screwtape is a demon, we come by our knowledge of God uh, in an indirect way. So when, when Screwtape expresses his disgust most violently, it's always a reaction to some aspect of God's glory, his goodness, his love, his victory. So all the things that Christians hail as good news, these are the things that Screwtape, you know, he throws a hissy fit, you know, on several occasions throughout the book about these things. Um, but through, through those passages, you, you come to learn something about the Lord, which is really interesting. And then lastly, we talk, I'm still talking about the previous lecture. We haven't started yet. Um, I talked about the central metaphor that Lewis uses. So uh, the metaphor that he uses to describe hell uh, is an enormous, dreary bureaucracy. Oh, sorry. There's, the, there's a couple of different artist uh, depictions of screw tape. Some of them capture his, his ridiculous nature. This one certainly captures how seriously he takes himself. Uh, none of them are really, I don't know. They're all sort of cliched in one way or another. This is, an exi- this is a depicting a passage where he gets so angry he turns into a centipede. Um, anyway. But... Uh, Anyway, a bureaucracy is the the image that Lewis has for hell. And it's very thoughtful. It's very thoughtfully done, actually. Um, an enormous, not just a bureaucracy, but a bureaucracy of a totalitarian state. <clears throat> so it's a place of fear and lack of trust. Lots of meetings and committees and officials and secretaries and undersecretaries and subcommittees. Lots of memo passing and drafting of reports. There's a secret police. Uh, there are research departments and propaganda departments and a training school for demon tempters and a house of corrections for the screw-ups that don't manage to do a good job. Uh, so in Screwtape's hell, everyone takes themselves very, 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 very seriously. He's much too dignified to ever laugh at himself about anything. So this is one of the things that actually is funny about him. He's so pompous, he can't, he can't even recognize his own absurdity. But there's also lots of fear, jockeying for power, and backstabbing. There's no friendship, trust, contentment. There's no loyalty of any kind. It's a place where self-interest governs everything. So it's, pre- it's pretty hideous. Um, I'll give you another picture of just I just found so many pictures of dreary bureaucracies. <laughs> Google Google images bureaucracy and you get all kinds of terrible um, Lewis uses this imagery to make very clear that there's nothing fun about the devil. The modern notion that to reject God's law is somehow the way to freedom, liberation, uh, that evil in contrast is somehow 
glamorous and sophisticated and sexy. Uh, these claims are complete lies and lies that have done a lot of damage in the post-Christian West. So Lewis is trying to restore a truer picture of what evil actually is, which is just life-sucking, senseless, joyless. And so bureaucracy serves as a metaphor because it's the least interesting setting Lewis could think of. <laughs> the least compelling. He says, well, <laughs> why didn't he portray hell in the more sort of typical, stereotypical things with caves and bats and stuff like that? He's like, well, because I like bats better than bureaucrats. <laughs> That's why he chose this. <laughs> And I think it's very effective. Actually, it suits Lewis's purpose as well. The book is riveting and fascinating. Who, who has actually read the book? I'm sorry, I should have asked this in the beginning. That's awesome. Okay, so a lot of people have. Uh, um, it's a riveting read, but your attention is drawn really to the human patient and the drama unfolding as, as Screwtape battles for this person's soul. That is really Lewis's intention. That's what he wants the focus to be. For all of Screwtape's comments about the, the protocols and procedures and policies of hell, you never find yourself wanting to know more. It doesn't inspire curiosity at all. At least to me, it doesn't inspire curiosity at all. It sounds dreary. It sounds like this picture looks. Uh, and that's his intention. He doesn't want to mislead anybody. to think that, well, actually, sure, heaven might be great, but the real fun is in hell. No. Not at all. Uh, it's his depiction of Screwtape's world. Um, in this depiction, Lewis expresses something real about the nature of evil, I think. It stands really for nothing in itself, but exists only to contradict whatever God does, whatever God says, whatever God loves. Its only goal is to negate heaven at all costs. So there's a way in which the very nature of, of evil is parasitic. Uh, it doesn't stand for anything. It doesn't have any views. <laughs> uh, it's simply to undermine God's truth. And this is where this is sort of where the lecture starts tonight, because this is a very important theme for the lecture, as, as you'll see. Uh, we're talking about roads to unreality. And let me just see here. <clears throat> Screwtape is constantly trying to lead the man into unreality or into nothingness which sounds nonsensical because it is he wants to lead the man away from the only real uh, source of existence that there is in God and into nothing uh, that's a very abstract way of putting it but there's lots of kinds of unreality that we'll talk about tonight and lots of roads to get there that Screwtape is trying to to, uh, to draw this man down these roads. Screwtape and Wormwood are liars, like I said before, but they almost never directly try to instruct the patient to adopt false beliefs, many of which are absurd and wouldn't actually stand up to the gentlest scrutiny. So in the very first letter, Screwtape reminds Wormwood, who is the junior demon he's writing to, uh, that his job is to fuddle the patient, not to teach him. Your job is to fuddle him. In other words, confuse him. Screwtape knows that they have nothing to teach. We're not teaching anything to anybody. We're just confusing them. So again and again, uh, he urges Wormwood not to appeal to the man's reason. <clears throat> Do not awaken his rational mind. He says uh, at one point, 
The way must be prepared for your moral assault by darkening his intellect. So this is an area in which Francis Schaeffer and Screwtape would actually agree on this one point. Francis Schaeffer said somewhere, I'm not sure when he said this, but that if there were more critical thinkers in the world, there would be more Christians. And and uh, Screwtape says, almost says that, actually. Um, one, may, one way among many of darkening the intellect of the patient is to fill his head with popular rhetoric and jargon and cliches that give him the impression that he knows everything worth knowing, but without ever letting him think about what is true and what is false. Don't ever get him to ask that question. Get him to think about what is popular or progressive or whatever, anything other than true or false. So, as you can see, deception and distraction are really the main weapons against the patient, and the goal is confusion. Particularly the kind of confusion that doesn't know it's confused. Um, They don't just want the patient to take wrong paths in life. They don't even want him to know that he's on a path. They want him to be oblivious to the fact that he's even making significant choices at all, every day. The hope is to keep the patient's mind in a haze so that what is perfectly obvious never occurs to him. So to screw tape, the ideal patient could live a vaguely comfortable, unexamined life or a vaguely tormented, unexamined life. doesn't matter as long as their life is vague and unexamined. could be anything. He's 100% practical. Screwtape doesn't stand for anything, but he's whatever works in distancing a person from God is what you go with. So, some examples of these unrealities. These are just kind of like um, summaries of what I'll say at greater length. So, so uh, I'm not, I'm not going to follow these words exactly, but you'll get the idea. These are some examples of the kind of unrealities that Screwtape is, is trying to... Uh, to draw the man into. First, don't let him stop and think clearly about the absurdity of his assumption that if he loses interest in his faith, perhaps it's untrue. There's no logical connection between losing interest in something and it and it being untrue. Right. Uh, so, yeah, to lose interest does not mean this is false. There's absolutely no reason why that would necessarily be the case. But don't let the patient ever be aware of his own lapse in logic there. <clears throat> let him just think, oh, I'm sort of not as interested in my faith as I used to be. Maybe it's not true. And don't get him to think about it. Don't let him think about it. Secondly, don't let him ever consider the possibility that he might be guilty of the very same irritating tones of voice that he despises in his mother. <laughs> so the patient lives with his mother. And part of the advice that Screwtape is giving is like how to irritate the home life as much as possible uh, so that they, they both hold the other to double standards and they both grow more and more self-righteous and more and more angry at the other. And it just, it's just truly hideous what he's, what he's trying to, to manufacture in their home. But don't let the guy realize that he does the very same things to his mother that his mother does to him and, and um, to his annoyance. It's obvious that he does this, but never let him see it. Keep him stupidly believing that he's always innocent and so always the victim in every argument that he has with his mother, even while he's intentionally trying to offend her. Convince him that he's still the victim. Mm. (laughs) Unreality, right? Um, Third, 
get the patient to experience anxiety about every possible bad outcome in his future, even though they logically could not all take place. Some disasters are mutually exclusive, right? <laughs> you know, you, I'm either going to die falling off a building or crashing in a plane. They can't both happen, right? Anyway, but get him to think of all of them as as something to be anxious about. Then get him to think of all of these hypothetical disasters as his cross to bear, even though none of them have yet taken place and and they may never. In this way, he'll be distracted from identifying his actual duties in the moment, in the day. He'll be distracted from his actual cross to bear, which is the the psychological state of anxiety. Don't let him think about his cross to bear as this moment. I'm experiencing anxiety right now. This is my cross to bear, and I need to work on this with God. No, 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 no. Get him to think of all those future disasters as his cross to bear. Um, and in this way, he'll be distracted from the present moment, which is the only moment in which he can do anything, and he'll be dominated by thoughts of an unreal future. And that'll just control him and dominate all his thinking. So, uh, those are just a few examples. We'll do, well, there'll be plenty more. <laughs> if you're already feeling slightly sick, I'm sorry. Uh, but you, you can see the way this is screw tape muddying the water. This is him stirring up the mud so that everything is unclear and the patient is just... Uh, unaware of what's really happening. It's a state of unreality. <laughs> Interestingly, these states, these kind of states of unreality are of much more value to screw tape than if the patient were to commit spectacular sins. And he's always, he's always warning Wormwood. I know all you young tempters want your patients to do terrible things like rape and murder and treason and embezzlement. It's like, but don't, it's like, don't get seduced by that. Like, that stuff doesn't really matter. It's much, much better. Because sometimes people that commit horrible atrocities in moments of shocking clarity turn to God. You don't want that. What you really want, it's much better to lead the patient very quietly, very gradually, ignorantly, away from God, oblivious that they're going away from God. So it's like, eh, don't get too excited about spectacular sins. They don't actually help us necessarily. <laughs> Um, so, more examples of different roads to unreality. Screwtape wants to lead the man down. Uh, <laughs> so we'll just keep going. There's lots. Okay. Um, lead him away from the re- from really talking to God. This is about prayer. There's a whole a whole chapter very early on on prayer and all the ways to divert his prayer and screw up his prayer and get him to basically just be thinking about himself rather than God. So. Lead him away from really talking to God honestly, nakedly, before the Lord. And and replace that with introspection and emotionalism. Basically, get him to just be reflecting on his own emotional state while he's praying. Get him to judge the success of prayer based on how well he manufactures feelings. I really feel reverent. I really feel repentant. I really feel this and I feel that... Get him to just focus on his own emotional state, taking his pulse, and then judge whether, oh, this was that, what a great prayer time that was. I felt so reverent. Um, essentially turning him in on himself, and not turning him outward to the Lord, which was what prayer is supposed to be. Turning outward to the other, the ultimate other, who is our God. Uh, get him to turn inward on himself. Uh, get him to turn away from real virtue towards virtues as abstract ideas that are never embodied in practice. Get him to love 
virtues. Uh, lead him away from true perceptions of others towards unfair and irrational prejudices and assumptions. Lead him away from actually really knowing himself towards delusions about who he is, towards pride, entitlement, hypocrisy. And even lead him away from real pleasures and the things that he personally prefers in life, his tastes. Get him to abandon those things and replace them with what are important to like. The things that he does to impress other people. And this is the little you get to know about this man, this patient. It's, it's, it's the seduction of the world, which is really his real risk. He wants to, he wants to have sophisticated friends that like him. He wants to impress the smart people in the room. And so this is, this is the, the, the kind of area of temptation that Screwtape deals with a lot. Um, he wants to fit in with a sophisticated crowd. And so, anyway. We'll, we'll be dealing with some of these things in more detail, but those, these are just examples of what I mean by unreality. None of them are towards anything true, or, or, or none of them are towards a correct perception of reality. They're all uh, fog. <laughs> so, um, now we're going to slow down and look in more detail at some of these passages, and I'm going to read some of them at, at, at length, just because that's the way you're supposed to read the screw tape letters. Uh, I found it extremely hard to edit these excerpts because his writing is so tight and concise and every sentence belongs where it, where it belongs. So if you edit it, it just starts to it sort of falls apart. So we're going to read some, some significant chunks. Uh, and this will give you a, uh, I think a good taste of the kind of writing that we, that Lewis has done here. Um, organize it into these themes. Um, unreality regarding ownership and entitlement. But I'll just, I won't read them all now. You can see them. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. <clears throat> so, unreality about ownership and entitlement. This is screw tape talking now. Men are not angered by mere misfortune, but by misfortune conceived as injury. And the sense of injury depends on the feeling that a legitimate claim has been denied. The more claims on life, therefore, that your patient can be induced to make, the more often he will feel injured, and as a result, ill-tempered. Now you will have noticed that nothing throws him into a passion so easily as to find a tract of time, which he reckoned on having at his own disposal, unexpectedly taken from him. It is the unexpected visitor when he looked forward to a quiet evening, or the friend's talkative wife turning up when he looked forward to a time with the friend that throw him out of gear. Now he's not yet so uncharitable or slothful that these small demands on his courtesy are in themselves too much for it. They anger him because he regards his time as his own and feels that it is being stolen. You must therefore zealously guard in his mind the curious assumption, my time is my own. Let him have the feeling that, let him have the feeling that it starts, that he starts each day as the lawful possessor of 24 hours. Let him feel as a grievous tax that portion of his property, his time, which he has to make over to his employers, and as a generous donation that further portion which he allows to religious duties. But what he must never be permitted to doubt is that the total from which these deductions have been made was, in some mysterious sense, his own personal birthright. You have here a delicate task, 
The assumption which you want him to go on making is so absurd that if once it is questioned, even we cannot find a shred of argument in his defense. The man can neither make nor retain one moment of time. It all comes to him by pure gift. He might as well regard the sun and moon as his chattels. When I speak of preserving this assumption in his mind, therefore, the last thing I mean you to do is to furnish him with arguments in its defense. There aren't any. Your task is purely negative. Don't let his thoughts come anywhere near it. Wrap a darkness about it, and in the center of that darkness, let his sense of ownership in time lie silent, uninspected, and operative. The sense of ownership in general is always to be encouraged. The humans are always putting up claims to ownership, which sounds equally funny in heaven and in hell. And we must keep them doing so. Much of the modern resistance to chastity comes from men's belief that they own their bodies. Those vast and perilous estates, pulsating with the energy that made the worlds, in which they find themselves without their consent, and from which they are ejected at the pleasure of another. It is as if a royal child, whom his father has placed, for love's sake, in titular command of some great province, under the real rule of wise counselors, should come to fancy he really owns the cities, the forests, the corn, in the same way he owns the bricks in the nursery floor. And all the time, the joke is that the word mine, in its fully possessive sense, cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. In the long run, either our father or the enemy will say mine of each thing that exists, and especially of each man. They will find out in the end, never fear, to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong. Certainly not to them, whatever happens. At present, the enemy says mine of everything on the pedantic, legalistic ground that he made it. Our father hopes in the end to say mine of all things on the more realistic and dynamic ground of conquest. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. See what I mean about his writing? You can't really, you can't really take anything out. <laughs> so, what Screwtape is talking about here, and I feel sheepish, kind of paraphrasing or rephrasing everything because it's said so well. Anything I say is kind of just saying it worse. But I'll, um, well, it's my lecture, so I'm supposed to say some things. <laughs> um, what Screwtape is talking about is the spiritual damage that entitlement does to a human being. Real damage. Entitlement is this, so it comes from the, from the notion that you're actually, you have a title. You're a monarch. You have some, and along with that position, along with that title comes, uh, comes privileges, right? So that's, where, that's the, the concept of entitlement. But it's basically an absurd, unexamined sense that the world owes you things. The privileges should come to me because I'm me. It's unexamined, right? Uh, entitlement makes us bitter and grumpy because real life does not respect our delusions. Uh, but it also hardens our hearts against God in a terrible way. If we believe, nonsensically, but if we believe that we both own and deserve our bodies, our time, our families, our work, our money... We will refuse to offer these things to God and will fail to give thanks to him for them. Which is to say we will not recognize them as gifts. Because we think we're just receiving our due. If you think you deserve something and you think it's owed to you, 
and you think it's due to you, you don't recognize that thing as a gift. So, uh, and this makes it impossible really to honor God for who God really is, which is the, the giver of every gift and the owner of everything, including our bodies. And so, uh, it doesn't just lead to, to, uh, to, to grumpiness. It leads to just a, a total inability to recognize God for who God is, the giver of every good gift. So, at all costs, Screwtape wants to prevent the patient from realizing his true position, which is that he's being blessed, he's being provided for, he's being given things that he doesn't deserve constantly, all the time. Thanksgiving would be the true and appropriate response to all of life, but no one gives thanks for things they feel entitled to. No one gives thanks for things they think they already own. So if I view my health as something I deserve, if I feel entitled to good health, uh, something that is just due to me because I'm me, I'll never view it as a gift and I'll never recognize the giver who granted me health. And I will be enraged and offended when I get sick as if a right has been violated, which it hasn't. Nobody has a right to be healthy. So this is the unreality into which Screwtape wants the patient to wander and then stay. Blindly, irrationally entitled, ungrateful, and always irritated at people everywhere he goes. Without ever seeing the obvious common thread running through all his disappointments, which is his own ridiculous expectations. Don't get him to recognize that the... The common reality of all these stories of you feeling hard done by, it's you. That's the common thread in your attitude. Okay, so there's another passage in where Screwtape expands on the, the subtle... This is, <laughs> bear with me here. The, the people who like grammar will like this part. So um, he expounds on the subtle gradations of meaning in the possessive pronoun, mine. He points out that, at least in English, I can't speak for other language, but at least in English, we use the same word, my, mine, to refer to objects, animals, people, countries, and God. My boots, my wife, my country, my God. The possessive pronoun is the same in all of this. But if in each of these cases we mean mine as in the possessive of ownership... It's just completely inappropriate, isn't it? Um, we will try to take obsessive control over people in our lives as if they were objects. Uh, we will dominate and rob other people of their God-given dominion that they're supposed to have. And we'll treat God as if he's simply there to serve us. He's my God. Belongs to me. The mine of ownership does not account for the relational sense of the word between two subjects. You could say mine of another object, my shoe. But of another subject, um, it has to exist in a relational sense. In other words, say in a marriage, when I, in a sense, belong to my wife, and she, in a sense, belongs to me, my wife. But it's relational, it's not ownership, right? Um, So this is so obvious, and yet, Screwtape's hope is to fuddle the patient to the point that he lives... As if there's no real difference in all these uses of the word mine. Get him to think of them all as the mine of ownership. If it's mine, I can do whatever I want with it. Anyway. So, we're going to move along. Unreality regarding dryness 
in the spiritual life. I basically just picked like my four favorite chapters, so this is not necessarily a well-rounded portrayal of the scripture, but you just have to read it. My dear Wormwood, so you have great hopes that the patient's religious phase is dying away, have you? Has no one ever told you about the law of undulation? Humans are amphibians, half spirit and half animal. The enemy's determination to produce such a revolting hybrid was one of the things that determined our father to withdraw his support from him. This is one of the self-deceptions of Screwtape. The, the, the biblical account of, of Satan actually being cast out of heaven to Screwtape is terrible propaganda. No, we, we, in a very dignified way, distance ourselves from God because we didn't agree with him anymore. So this is, this is the kind of like self-deception of hell that we're talking about. Uh, it's a big kingdom, but really it's just a prison cell. It's just a containment facility what hell is <clears throat> anyway okay so our father withdrew his support from from the enemy as spirits human beings belong to the eternal world but as animals they inhabit time this means that while their spirit can be directed to an eternal object their bodies passions and imaginations are in continual change for to be in time means to change their nearest approach to constancy therefore is undulation the repeated return to a level from which they repeatedly fall back. A series of troughs and peaks. If you had watched your patient carefully, you would have seen this undulation in every department of his life. His interest in his work, his affection for his friends, his physical appetites all go up and down. As long as he lives on earth, periods of emotional and bodily richness and liveliness will alternate with periods of numbness and poverty. To decide what the best use of it is, you must ask what the enemy wants to make of it, and then do the opposite. Now, it may surprise you to learn that in his efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, he relies on the troughs even more than on the peaks. Some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. The reason is this. To us, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. But he really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he's absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. And that is where the troughs come in. You must have often wondered why the enemy does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in any degree he chooses and at any moment. But you now see that the irresistible and the indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of his scheme forbids him to use. Merely to override a human will would be for him useless. He cannot ravish. He can only woo. For his ennoble idea is to eat the cake and have it. The creatures are to be one with him, but yet themselves. Merely to cancel them or assimilate them will not serve. He is prepared to do a little overriding at the beginning. He will set them off with communications of his presence which, though faint, seem great to them, with emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation. But he never allows the state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later he withdraws, if not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the creature 
to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those that please him best. We can drag our patients along by continual tempting because we design them only for the table. And the more their will is interfered with, the better. He cannot tempt to virtue as we do to vice. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. So Screwtape is, is educating Wormwood about the way in which God often grows people into maturity. And it's not by constantly providing warm and powerful spiritual experiences to, to stoke the flame of their faith. Rather, God often grows us by allowing us to choose to follow him even when there are no such perks, uh, when, when times are hard. So... If a human acts out of obedience when God feels distant, that's a sign of deep faith and something that will actually grow a person's faith deeper. God wants people who love to serve him so that obedience becomes a value and an end in itself. He does not want obedience that just uh, is a means to some other end. Like, if I'm good, then God will do this for me. That's not actually love for God. That's love for the thing you want God to do for you. And obedience is a means to that end. Uh, but but uh, the Lord actually really wants obedience that is love for him, that is willing. Uh, so predictably, this is the, the truth that Screwtape wants the patient to never learn. Screwtape wants to lead the patient into the unreality of essentially unrealistic expectations of his spiritual life. In a later chapter, Screwtape lists a couple of different ways to exploit these times of dryness, the, the troughs, which most of us have experienced. Uh, most of us have experienced, those of us who are Christians, have experienced times where God feels far away. There's nothing of the sweetness and the exuberance that our faith used to have. Um, this is a very normal part of the Christian person's life. Uh, so Screwtape starts by saying, well, the troughs are, this is my paraphrase, they're a good opportunity to push sexual temptations on this man because his resistance is lower, but also it's in these times of dryness that he's more likely to have his sexual desire perverted and made unwholesome. Um, when he's bored and tired and sad, it's much more likely. But then, yeah, that's all very well, but using pleasures as temptations is tedious to, to, the, to the demons. Screwtape says it's much better to confuse the patient about the nature of his low emotional state. He says, first, keep all thoughts about the law of undulation, that, that idea that we have troughs and peaks all the time. Keep all thoughts of the law of undulation out of his mind. Keep him from realizing that these emotionally rich experiences have never been constant. They've never lasted. They always come and go. And this is normal. Don't let him really, don't, don't allow him to realize that. Instead, convince him that the passion and enthusiasm should have lasted forever. And it could have lasted forever. But something went wrong. Make him think that this current time of dryness will last forever. And this is 
both of these are untrue. Um, if the patient comes to think in this way, then Wormwood is free to push him in several different directions. On the one hand, the man could be pushed towards wishful thinking, which goes like this. Uh, this dry time in which God feels distance is not all that bad after all. In other words, get the patient to half-consciously just adjust to the new low standard and stop worrying about it. Over time, Screwtape says, this can create a very comfortable and moderated religion in which the patient neither expects nor wants God to show up in his life. He'll be happy to go through the religious motions comfortably ignoring the living God. He'll never hunger and thirst for God the way that the, the psalmist hungers and thirsts for God. Or... You could push him in a different direction. You could try to make him struggle to recreate the feelings that he had early in his faith. Get him to exhaust himself desperately trying to manufacture religious experience. Because after all, this kind of intensity should have lasted. So he's going he's gonna to try harder. But this will fail. And when it fails, he will despair or become cynical about God. God just, God ignores me. He doesn't show up for me. So these are a couple of options of deception. And then Screwtape says, the best option of all to him. Uh, in, during these trough times, get the patient to view his, his religion condescendingly as a phase. It was just a phase. It was a phase which is passing, and it was always going to pass. Let's be honest. Get him to use jargon words like progress and development and adolescent. All of which make him feel superior to his past self and the outdated ideas he used to, to affirm. Never let him think about the true false antithesis. That's off the table. Never let him think about whether something is true or false. Only let him consider if a belief is up to date or progressive or bold or in vogue. These are all categories that have nothing to do with truth or falsehood. Right? It just has to do with popularity, essentially. His conversion will then seem naive to him for no better reason than it was in his past. It was naive because it was in my past. And so, elsewhere, uh, Lewis makes a related criticism in general of the modern West. It says the West is guilty of what he calls chronological snobbery. And I forget where, does anyone know where he says this? It's comes up a lot in our conversations here. But I forget where he... But anyway, he coins this phrase. Chronological snobbery is the assumption that if an idea or philosophy is new, it must be better than what came before. It has to be. It, in, new intrinsically means right or better. And this is both completely illogical, but also really, really, really naive about humans. Because it assumes that people can never be deceived. It assumes that people only make progress. Society could never take a wrong turn and devolve. And that's historically just been proven again and again not to be true. Right? So, um, in a different chapter uh, of the Screw Tape Letters, he, he, he—it's not the same thing exactly, but it's a similar type of thing. He's—he's, he's, um, which I think is, is sort of humorous, but. Um, he talks about, Screwtape talks about the human's horror of the same old thing. The horror of the same old thing is one of the most valuable passions we have produced in the human heart. An endless source of heresies in religion, folly in counsel, infidelity in marriage, and inconstancy in friendship. Now, just as we pick out and exaggerate the pleasure of eating, 
to produce gluttony, so we pick out the natural pleasantness of change and twist it into a demand for absolute novelty. This demand is entirely our workmanship. It's the horror, the horror of the same old thing. So, in any case, Lewis is very, very insightful here about the unrealistic expectations we often have of our spiritual lives. So, if, if mountaintop experiences are the only indicator of God's reality, then our faith is very vulnerable and, and probably doomed. Um, if the Christian faith is really true, it must be true when there is no immediate incentives for believing it. Right? The truth of God surely is not so fragile that it, that it kind of flickers on and off depending on how we feel about it in every moment. Um, or depending on our blood sugar or how much sleep we've had. This, this impacts our, our mental state, doesn't it? So, uh, beliefs really are either true or false. And that's, that's, that's the case outside of our heads. Our ever, ever changing responses do not actually change reality outside our heads. So, screw tape ends. This is the, the culmination of the chapter I read earlier. Screw tape ends with the following stern warning. And, and, and think about, think about the, the echoes of Christ on the cross that are here. Kind of subtly. He doesn't talk, he doesn't talk about it. But it's, he, he's, he's talking to Wormit about how, how, how we know when we're really undone. We're really in trouble when this. He says, do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. (laughs) Awesome. Unreality regarding the growth of virtue. You guys doing okay? Is this enough? Alright. We're making some progress. <laughs> We're not there yet. Um, <clears throat> okay, so this is, I think the context of this letter is uh, anxiety and fear about the war. I think there's maybe been a blitz in London. And um, what do we make of this? The war itself is neither here nor there to screw tape. It doesn't really care about it very much. The only the only thing is what happens to people's souls. <laughs> How can we use it to our advantage? The war itself um, is maybe entertaining, but it doesn't get them anywhere necessarily. Because lots of people turn to God in wartime. So, anyway. In his anguish, this is screw tape talking, in his anguish, the patient can, of course, be encouraged to revenge himself by some vindictive feelings directed towards the German leaders. And that is good as far as it goes. But it, this is World War II, by the way. <clears throat> but it's usually a sort of melodramatic or mythical hatred directed against imaginary scapegoats. He has never met these people in real life. They are lay figures, modeled on what he gets from the newspapers. The results of such fanciful hatred are often most disappointing. And of all humans, the English are in this respect the most deplorable milksops. I had to look that up. Uh, it's an English idiom. A milksop is a person who is indecisive and lacks courage, or a feeble and ineffectual man. 
Um, the English. They are creatures of that miserable sort who loudly proclaim that torture is too good for their enemies and then give tea and cigarettes to the first wounded German pilot who turns up at the back door. <laughs> Do what you will, there's going to be some benevolence as well as some malice in your patient's soul. The great thing is to direct the malice to his immediate neighbors, whom he meets every day, and to thrust his benevolence out to the remote circumference to people he does not know. The malice thus becomes wholly real and the benevolence largely imaginary. There's no good at all in inflaming his hatred of Germans if, at the same time, a pernicious habit of charity is growing up between him and his mother, his employer, or the man he meets on the train. Think of your man as a series of concentric circles. It took me a long time to do this, so just... <laughs> Not as gifted as Esther is at producing the cool like images, but... Um, think of your man as a series of concentric circles. His will being the innermost, his intellect coming next, and finally his fantasy. You can hardly hope at once to exclude from all the circles everything that smells of the enemy... But you must keep on shoving all the virtues outward till they are finally located in the circle of fantasy and all the desirable qualities inward into the will. It is only insofar as they reach the will and are there embodied in habits that the virtues are really fatal to us. I don't, of course, mean what the patient mistakes for his will, the conscious fume and fret of resolutions and clenched teeth, but the real center, what the enemy calls the heart. All sorts of virtues painted in the fantasy or approved by the intellect or even in some measure loved and admired will not keep a man from our father's house. Indeed, they may make him more amusing when he gets there. Your affectionate uncle Scrooge. Okay. This is, this is one of my favorite letters because it's so perceptive about our own self-deception. Um, I think when I first read this, I was just like, Horrified, and uh, um, but when I think of my own life, it really rings true in, in some painful ways. So you have these three concentric circles: the will, the intellect, and the fantasy. Uh, but your will is the real center of you; it's your heart. The things you really care about live here. These are the values that are most real and relevant to you. These are the attitudes and loves that actually motivate you to real action. They hold sway over your actual behavior, and they, and they form your habits. Uh, we may not even be fully aware of what drives are motivating us, what actually is in our heart, the real thing. We may be ignorant about that. But this is where God most wants to be in each of us. He wants to be the Lord of, of all of it. He wants to be the Lord of all, of all the circles. But as Strute points out, virtues like love, patience, and generosity mean very, very little if they only exist in the outer spheres, in the intellect, in the fantasy world. <clears throat> Unless these virtues live in the, in the center, in the will, they'll always remain abstract ideas. They'll never actually be important enough to, to change our behavior. So if virtues can be pushed out of the will, uh, the patient could be passionately in favor of them in the realm of make-believe. He could even defend and make compelling arguments for virtue with his intellect. 
but meanwhile, meanwhile, vices like greed and spite and lust will work their way uh, inward to his will, and the patient will be, without knowing it, submitting his real heart to the devil, uh, refusing to let God comment on his treatment of real people. And he'll become very likely self-righteous because he'll have the impression that Christian virtues are very important to him. Because he thinks about them and he, and he thinks they're great. <laughs> so I think this is the inner psychological dynamic that produces a lot of hypocrisy in people. Like what's going on? How does someone become so hypocritical? <laughs> you know, uh, how do we become hypocritical? Um, there's this radical disconnect between what you say is important and what you really care about and end up doing. So Screwtape is exploiting the fact that most people want to think better of themselves than is quite truthful. Most, most of us want to think better of ourselves. Uh, each of us can probably think of some examples in our own lives. We may not want to think of examples, but I'll, I'll give you one which I think uh, occurred to me. If you think of how, if you really watch and listen to the news a lot, if you're a news junkie, Think of the ways in which the 24-hour 24-hour news cycle can prey on our sentiments. We watch or hear about disasters in distant countries all day long. Uh, and we may be moved to tears by the suffering of people or children in places that we're never going to go. Uh, and because of this emotional response that we have to these tragedies, we actually convince ourselves that we are deeply compassionate people. And perhaps half-consciously, we know that this kind of compassion will not require us to do anything at all. Feeling pity of this kind will not actually uh, call us to any kind of material sacrifice. But it feels good because it reinforces a self-image that we want to have. I care. I really, really care. I'm moved by the suffering of other people. But then there's a knock on the door, and the neighbor needs help shoveling their walkway again because it's been a crappy winter and there's lots of snow. Why don't they buy a snowblower? Why don't they have grown children to help them? How did I become the neighborhood property manager? So it's, it's the local, somewhat manageable, neighborly demands. They're the ones that are the only ones that really uh, ask something of our will. They're the only duties that are within the sphere of our dominion. They're within reach that we can actually do something about these things. So our attitude towards these demands reveals the true content of our hearts. Not whether we respond emotionally to a newscast. Uh, and this is, this is the part of the patient that Screwtape most wants to barricade against God. Uh, another illustration, I'll just refer to it. Uh, I'm sure some of you probably read Dostoevsky's novel, Brothers Karamazov. Uh, there's a woman early on in the book, this is an amazing passage, where she comes, there's, there's a monastery and there's, there's the, the famous abbot who's a very wise elderly monk named Zosima. And all of these uh, <coughs> worshippers are coming to the church and asking him for spiritual advice. So this woman comes to Zosima for advice. She, is, she doesn't know what to do. She's overwhelmed by her own love for humanity. So much so that she sometimes fantasizes about leaving everything, including her disabled daughter, and giving her life to serve the poor. Meanwhile, she's disturbed by how irritating she finds most ordinary people. The guy that sniffles too much in the church pew, uh, or eats too loudly or something. Uh, then she also starts to stress about 
what she will do if these hypothetical poor people that she wants to serve do not express sufficient gratitude to her. Um, and she's sort of a mess. <laughs> and Zosima very wisely, compassionately, but matter-of-factly tells her that perhaps what you should try to do is love your actual neighbors, um, the people that God has already placed in your path. Like, Try that. Right. Well, this, this isn't the... the, the dramatic kind of wisdom she was looking for, I don't think. Anyway, uh, lastly, what sums up perfectly is this uh, Schultz cartoon. You, a doctor? Huh, that's a big laugh. You could never be a doctor. You know why? Because you don't love mankind, that's why. I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. So this is Linus summing up the, basically the you can convince yourself you're a great person if you can convince yourself you love humanity or mankind, which is an abstraction, costs you nothing to love humanity, um, the question is, do you love a person who's in front of you? That's what will actually demand something of your will. Okay. <clears throat> Last one. Unreality regarding earthly pleasures. So the following reading uh, begins with a rebuke. Uh, screw tape is often is often just like tearing into Wormwood because Wormwood is sort of incompetent, evidently, and so screw tape is always like insulting him and threatening him. You should have known this, you know. But uh, the patient has evidently had some sort of renewal of his faith. He sort of a, sort of a second conversion in a way, and uh, he's realized that he's been drifting away from God, and he repents. And so this is this is a disaster, you know, for screw tape. And uh, so he yells at him for a bit in the first paragraph, and then he says this. And now for your blunders. On your own showing, you first of all allowed the patient to read a book he really enjoyed, because he enjoyed it, and not in order to make clever remarks about it to his new friends. In the second place, you allowed him to walk down to the old mill and have tea there, a walk through country he really likes and taken alone. In other words, you allowed him two real positive pleasures. Were you so ignorant as to not see the danger of this? The characteristic of pains and pleasures is that they are unmistakably real and therefore, as far as they go, give the man who feels them a touchstone of reality. Thus, if you've been trying to damn your man by the romantic method, by making him a kind of child Harold or Werther submerged in self-pity for imaginary distresses, you would try to protect him at all costs from any real pain, because, of course, five minutes genuine toothache would reveal the romantic sorrows for the nonsense that they were, and it unmasked your whole stratagem. But you were trying to damn your patient by the world, that is, by palming off vanity, bustle, irony, and expensive tedium as pleasures. How can you have failed to see that a real pleasure was the last thing you ought to have let him meet? Didn't you foresee that it would just kill, by contrast, all the trumpery which you have been so laboriously teaching him to value? And that the sort of pleasure which the book and the walk gave him was the most dangerous of all? That it would peel off from his sensibility the kind of crust you have been forming on it and make him feel that he was coming home, recovering himself? As a preliminary to detaching him from the enemy, 
you wanted to detach him from himself and had made some progress in doing so. Now all that is undone. Of course, I know the enemy also wants to detach men from themselves, but in a different way. Remember always that he really likes the little vermin and sets an absurd value on the distinctiveness of each and every one of them. When he talks of their losing themselves, he only means abandoning the clamor of self-will. Once they have done that, he really gives them back all their personality and boasts, I'm afraid sincerely, that when they are wholly his, they will be more themselves than ever. Hence, while he is delighted to see them sacrificing even their innocent wills to his, he hates to see them drifting away from their own nature for any other reason. And we should always encourage them to do so. The deepest likings and impulses of any man are the raw material, the starting point with which the enemy has furnished him. To get him away from those is therefore always a point gained. Even in things indifferent, it is always desirable to substitute the standards of the world or or convention or fashion for a human's own real likings and dislikings. I myself would carry this very far. I would make it a rule to eradicate from my patient any strong personal taste which is not actually a sin. Even if it is something quite trivial, such as a fondness for county cricket, or collecting stamps, or drinking cocoa. (laughs) Such things, I grant you, have nothing of virtue in them, but there is a sort of innocence and humility and self-forgetfulness about them which I distrust. The man who truly and disinterestedly enjoys any one of... any any one thing in the world for its own sake and without caring tuppence what other people say about it is by that very fact forearmed against some of our subtlest modes of attack. You should always try to make the patient abandon the people or food or books he really likes in favor of the best people, the right food, the important books. I have known a human defended from strong temptations to social ambition by a still stronger taste for tripe and onions. <laughs> so, uh, this honestly, this is this is one of the most encouraging, encouraging chapters in the in the Screw Tape letters because of what it tells us about God. Right? Of course, it's it's, it's what makes Screw Tape angry, but it's but it's still he's still saying true things about who God is. Right? Um, how God views our experience of pleasure in the world he's made, and how God views our individuality. The fact that we have different tastes, we're different people. Uh, and it is the way he values that. So this is actually, I want to sort of transition to my last section, in which we will uh, try to identify some of the insights about God that we come by, even even through the sort of twisted words of screw tape. So um, we've been talking about Unreality, the, the demons nudging people t- towards unreality. Now, what's the reality you know, that Screwtape is, is trying to prevent the man from perceiving? And really, we've sort of been talking about it all along. Um, it's there in, in, in all of these readings. But I'll start where we just left off with, with the question of pleasure. Um, reality is that everything good that's capable of producing genuine, wholesome pleasure is from God. And he designed those things to be pleasurable. This is just a basic fact. Pleasures come from nowhere else. Uh, Screwtape admits this. He says this. It's another another wonderful passage. Uh, Never forget 
the, the thing I love about this is that we just assume that like the devil, the devil only uses our pleasures to get to get to us. That somehow our desires and 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 pleasure is is, is intrinsically somehow twisted and will lead us to the devil. And he, and and uh, Lewis is trying to undermine that assumption, actually. Um, because behind that assumption, there's a lot of Platonism. There's a lot of like misunderstanding of what the, the Bible actually tells us. So he says this. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. It is more certain and it's better style. To get the man's soul and give him nothing in return. That is what really gladdens our father's heart. So, throughout the book, Screwtape is, a, is a really a diehard Platonist. Uh, he is pure, which means he's a dualist. He, 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 he values the spirit over the physical. He despises physical matter. Um, he's pure spirit and he's elitist about it. He hates that humans have physical bodies. Uh, he believes that to be an insult to the spiritual world. He's appalled by the incarnation. He calls it that disreputable incident. <laughs> um, that the enemy himself would degrade himself by taking on flesh is just disgusting to Screwtape. Uh, he distrusts the physical creation as being wholly God's idea, uh, and hence resents human enjoyment of creation and human enjoyment of, phys- of their physical embodiment. He resents it. Um, so the pleasure of a country walk or a good book or a hot bath or the pleasure of sex uh, or even tripe and onions or a, a cricket game, all these things offend him deeply. Um, why should the little vermin have fun, he says. Uh, we shouldn't allow <laughs> So at one point he comments, he comments with real disgust. He calls God a hedonist at several, on several different occasions. He's a hedonist. Uh, he's obsessed with pleasure. Um, and he says it with real disgust. And he says, you know, there are things for people to do all day long without God minding in the least. <laughs> so, in his view, more of life should be forbidden. And God should be more of a legalist. Because to screw tape, that would be more spiritual. And it would make it easier to tempt people to sin. Because there'd be more things that are sinful. And, but no. You know, to his, to his horror, God thinks that country walks and hot baths and fun books and cricket and sex are all great. He thinks they're great. You know, how wonderful that this is actually who God is, right? (laughs) Um, how challenging to us if we have the misguided belief that somehow to enjoy something is to be displeasing to God. Like, not very many Christians will actually articulate that directly, but that is a nagging suspicion that many people have. Somehow, I'm enjoying myself. It's either directly displeasing to God, or I'm ignoring something else more important that I should be doing. Sometimes that's true. 
Right. This, it's not that just just to seek pleasure is always a good thing. Not at all. But uh, it is definitely not the case that that to enjoy something in, in the world that God has given us is displeasing to Him. It's it's actually pleasing to Him. Um. Yeah, I think I think uh, to many Christians, um, we've been either taught or it's been implied that it's more spiritual more spiritually safe to forbid things than to allow them. Uh, when in doubt, say no to nice things. You never know. So it's just safer to, to, to forbid. It's actually not safer. <laughs> uh, Lewis puts this message, which many Christians have heard coming from the pulpit or, or from church, Lewis puts this very message in the mouth of the devil, um, where it belongs. The devil is the one who does not want us to enjoy anything that God has made. Uh, Screwtape admits that one of the goals of using pleasure out of its proper context and as a temptation is to do away with the pleasure altogether. Get the man to disobey God and not even enjoy himself while doing it. Um, there's this horrible, one of the most horrible chapters. He says, um, a man came down to hell and said this, I now see that all my life I neither did what I ought nor what I enjoyed. And this is this is like the goal for the demonic is to to, to neither get to prevent obedience but also to prevent enjoyment. So Screwtape admits that when we enjoy life in the ways that God designed us to, this is how we experience the most pleasure, actually. Um, what else do we learn? Uh Reality is that God approves of our individuality, our temperaments. That's this in the last chapter that came through really strongly. The sensibilities, the preferences, the the person that you particularly are matters to God. The particularity, um, the deepest likings and impulses of any man are the raw material, the starting point with which the enemy has furnished him. He says this. God hates to see him drift away from those aspects of himself. God doesn't want you to to drift away from yourself. He wants you to be who who you are, which is which is who he's made you to be. Uh, in other words, your uniqueness matters. He did not create a humanity of clones, and he does not want the church to be a group of people who who drift towards being clones. Um, even if some image is supplied to us by the church. Uh, we're not supposed to all look alike. The, the amazing irony of the Christian faith is that, is that uh, the church is supposed to be made up of people who are like Christ and yet very different from each other. And, and Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity, about how gloriously different the saints are from each other as they become more like Christ. Um, what else? What else do we see? We're almost there. Almost done. Uh, Screwtape is so obsessed with unreality and with lies and deception and, and confusion. Um, Lewis is reminding us, I think, throughout the whole book, almost on every page, that God is the source of everything real. Reality is in God. He is the foundation of all existence. Um, we often use the phrase, all truth is God's truth. People heard that expression before. All truth is God's truth. And Lewis kind of fleshes this idea out in many, many ways. His theology shines through uh, all the fog and the lies, I think. God 
is the foundation of all reality. Everything true, substantial, lasting, worthwhile, significant comes from him, and it's sustained by him. And so one of the implications here is that human reason, while it is not God, really can be a tool for discerning what is true and false. Uh, God gave us rational minds so that we could actually make sense of reality, ultimately seek and find him, the one who's there to be found. So whenever a human is humbly, honestly seeking truth, with real openness to what they find, they're looking for God, whether they know it or not. Um, This is why Screwtape is so distrustful of humans using their reason. Don't awaken that sleeping dog. Don't get him to think rationally about anything. Screwtape wants subtly to lead the man away from everything real. So real, clear thinking on the part of the patient is always a danger. God wants us to think, and to think clearly. And so what shines through all the fog is a tremendous affirmation of the human mind, that the true intellect actually honors God, because he's the God of truth. That's where I'm going to end. Um, I have a discussion question that I might just use. I might just kick off our discussion, and then we can either dwell on that, or we can dismiss it immediately and go on to something else. But this is something I wanted to engage with more during the lecture itself, but I thought, eh, let's just ask the question instead. Um, And this is maybe more relevant for those of you who have actually read the whole book. Um, Would Lewis have been able to communicate as effectively if the letters had been from a senior angel to a junior angel, uh, say if it was the Gabriel letters or whatever, um, an angel giving advice to a junior angel as to how to how to keep a young Christian on the right path. Um, the, it's sort of a literary question, actually. His, the device he uses, which is all negative, <laughs> it's, it's uh, like the photographic negative, remember, um, is that an effective way of communicating what he wants to communicate? Remember, everything he says about God is kind of indirect. Um, anyway, I'll just throw that out there. And uh, for those of you who are new to Labrie lectures, we we have a discussion time. Questions? I'll, I'll uh, respond, and then at a certain point, we'll end. But if you need to leave right now that's fine or if you at some point you can just leave there's no um, no pressure to stick around for the whole discussion if you don't want to but yeah any thoughts yeah Tom uh, I serve the God of pleasure because the Bible says there are 10,000 pleasures at the right hand of God mm-hmm. but I'm wondering where he got the name screw tape and where he did his research for the book concerning the demonic realm yeah um, he's written a bit about this uh and he, he promises that, that screw tape is really just a totally made up thing. There's, there's no real interesting story about it. I think it was just the sound of the word and some of the connotations of the sound, like thumb screws, screw tape, something, tapeworm, I don't even know. But it just, just like, and it, it was a nasty sounding word and he went with that. Um, I don't think he did a lot of research really? because he, he was not really interested in um, becoming more fascinated and interested with demonic things. I think he said, he does say that it was the easiest book he ever wrote and the least enjoyable. He wrote it very quickly. And he said that the knack of, of writing from the perspective 
from the sort of evil perspective was very easy to learn and it was not pleasant so it's an important book I think but he didn't enjoy writing it very much and he sort of and, and a lot of people wanted him to write sequels and whatever he wrote a, a short short story called Screwtape Proposes a Toast which is like a, just a, a public like a it's a toast anyway but um, but that's it because he was done with it didn't want to do it anymore <laughs> so yeah and he, and he says very clearly uh, if somebody reads the Screwtape Letters and develops a, a, you know an unwholesome fascination with the devil it won't be from me so it's not that's your own problem I'm not I'm, you know part of his motivation of the whole bureaucracy metaphor was to just make it as mm-hmm. as uninteresting as possible that's a point yeah. of Dungeons and Dragons yeah <laughs> that's what that's for yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm going to go back to your question unfortunately I haven't read the entire of the screw tape but I know much about them other than the stock mm-hmm. but when you discuss the indirect way of talking about God of talking about the spiritual life I was reminded of a wonderful series that I encourage everybody to search up uh, given by the National Gallery of Art in hmm. London hmm. about Christian art and how to understand it. And hmm. The curator there, uh, among several things, basically says that Christian art has an impossible task to communicate, especially Christian art depicting Jesus. Hmm. Which it says, well, this is something that both God and man, something infinite and yet right there. How can you possibly show that in art? And very similar to what Lewis does, she says, well, one of the techniques developed over the centuries is to attempt to communicate something either so completely different or so completely opposite that mm. you somehow communicate the thing itself. Mm. One of the videos is titled, Jesus is not like an earthworm. <laughs> because the point there is, is well, Jesus was humble, mm. uh, more humble than any of us, mm. and the earthworm is the most humble of creatures. <laughs> But Jesus is not like an earthworm. And, and the point that is, I wonder if this is something similar for the literary technique that Lewis is using, is that in a certain way, by not really directly stating what is the case, he has this more directly apprehend what is the case. Even though he's not coming right out and saying it. He's illustrating it to us by not showing it to us outright. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's. I think that's true. I mean, even, even when Screwtape is saying things that are literally true about God, it's it's uh, with disgust in his voice. So it's from a perspective that does not uh, view these truths positively. Even though a Christian reading it would be like, "Yeah, that's right. That is who God is. It's great." <laughs> you know, yeah, it's true. Yeah, Emily. Yeah. Uh, to build off that a little bit, first of all, this is not my analysis. I just don't remember where I read it. Okay. Somebody who is not me uh, has opined that the reason that most you know, Christian bloggers who try to do modern script tape letters uh-huh. fail is because they're writing about their opponents. Hmm. They're writing hmm. screw tape counseling wormwood on how to distract their opponents. Whereas Lewis is writing about himself. Mm-hmm. And I think why it works more than like you said, an angelic letter series is because we recognize ourselves in the patient, and yeah. hopefully not very much, but certainly a little bit in screw tape. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it were angelic letters, like, great, but what do we do with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I love what you said about, yeah, about 
um, one of the reasons why I think the book is so uh, continues to be so relevant and well and widely read is that you do identify with the patient because all of the states of confusion that that Screwtape is trying to lead him into, you recognize. You're like, yep. <laughs> I have experienced that. And he, uh, yes. And and uh, if you're honest, you know. Um, and then, like, every page... We're with the Germans anymore, but we all have annoying neighbors. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Mm-hmm. Yes? There's something Orwell said in his, like, t- tips for writing in a compelling way mm-hmm. um, that was essentially just never write anything that you're used to seeing in print. Already, and there's something there. I mean, just at, at its very basis, mm-hmm. this particular device is unusual, yeah. and, and requires Lewis to say say things in ways that, like, approach the same truth, but have never been heard before, which then requires us to be. Yeah, yeah, and and it is satire. I mean, it's good to remember that it is satire. So, like, you very often um, people that write fiction. Or short or short stories or whatever, they can get away with expressing views in their art that are very far from what they actually believe. You know, you can you can write an entire piece that's expressing precisely the opposite of what you believe, and that's the whole point. It's it's you're exaggerating some sort of vice in order to critique it or mock it, or whatever. Um, and that you know, like Jonathan Swift's you know, uh, a modest proposal or whatever with it, you know, which was. This, this very well, Jonathan Swift, Irish man, seventeen something or other. But he wrote this. He wrote this, this paper that everybody read in England about the. Uh, it's a very well reasoned argument for why it would be a good idea to solve the starvation problem in Ireland by encouraging the Irish to eat their babies. And it was just completely straight faced. Reasonable, da, 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 it would solve this problem, da, 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 da. and he, he was satire. He was trying to reveal the the hard heartedness of mm. British Euro Parliament <laughs> and the, the, the total callousness that with which they view the Irish. Um, but how do you do that? Do so you tell them that they're callous? Like no, you 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 exaggerate callousness and you get them to judge it. They were horrified. By this piece he'd written, and uh, in the meantime, they're judging themselves. They're, they're, you know, they're, it's revealing something to themselves. And this is something that happens uh, in a lot of satire. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking of some um, some of the way the Bible does that. Um, Nathan's story to David, yeah. where he gets David, the man deserves to die. Yeah. You're the man. Mm-hmm. You know, but if he come out and just said it directly. David would have defended himself. He would have he never. He never would have. And then, and then, so much of Jesus' communication was was indirect. Was parables. Was stories. Was um, and even just weird things that make, they make you scratch your head. And like the parable of the unjust steward, where it ends up saying, um, commending, commending the unjust steward, yeah. because the unrighteous are wiser in their generation than the children of light. Hmm. And then you, what? It just seems, yeah. it, it just makes you, <coughs> makes you have, have to stop and think. And I think so much of Jesus' communication was to get people 
to actually mm-hmm. to unmask self-deception mm-hmm. the, of the of the self-righteous Jewish nationalists mm-hmm. who went in, or mm-hmm. um, self-righteousness over and over again. Yeah. Um, unmasking that. Yeah. You say something about you? No, I'm just underlining what you were saying there is that is that Christian communication to the world has an awful lot of become very, very predictable. Mm-hmm. And what you would deal with with the angels and so on, how they would be familiar and expected and guessed. Mm-hmm. This is totally unpredictable. This is unpredictable. Mm-hmm. This is not what we're used to. Mm-hmm. Looking at it from the downside forces us out of our predictable sort of rhythm of, of illusion, much of it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, to, to give us a sting. And which a lot of his parables were designed to do. Mm-hmm. It's not, I mean, the, the, the prodigal son parable is, mm-hmm. a, is a satire. It's, it's a portrait of the people he, he's talking to are, are the older brother. The older brother, yeah. The people he's addressing, three parables in a row to, are the, are the older brother mm-hmm. uh, who is self-righteous. too self-righteous that Jesus hangs out with rough people. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and the wonderful thing there is that, is that the older brother is invited in, uh, refuses, but then he is invited again, and the parable ends, and you go, no, if he decided or not. Because Jesus yeah. is asking the question to them, yeah. right, what are you going to do? And that's the end of the story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like you're going to yeah. come to the party. It's, it's yeah. interesting. Are you going yeah. to join the feast and the party? Yeah. The, the come, joy come is the pleasure. pleasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come to the joy. I think the... Um, uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, the, the, just about the... Um, how unpredictable. I mean, this, the, it's it's because he's not talking in Christian cliches and predictable Christian messages that this is actually a respected piece of satire, yeah. just as a, as a work of literature, regardless of the beliefs of readers. So it's not like it's obviously from a Christian perspective. Lewis is a well-known Christian apologist, but the Scrutiny of Letters is like is like a good work of satire um, and recognized as such by a lot of people who don't who aren't Christians. That's always a good sign. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a twist in the parable of the Good Samaritan that reminds me of this. Mm-hmm. How so? He, he describes, the, you know, the, the Levi and the priests mm-hmm. who are venerated and noble characters of society and shows them to be the opposite mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. And the low-life, uh, despised man shown to be the opposite mm-hmm. of what they're perceiving to be in society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... and there's even another layer there, that which the, the person who's in need of help is the Jew, and yeah. the person who is the good neighbor to them is the person is the Samaritan who yeah. the it. listener the listener at the time would, would yeah it would have made more sense for Jesus to say you know there was an injured Samaritan yeah. Yeah. and this really good Jewish man came along and he understood what it was to be a neighbor and he helped it's like no no no, no. Yeah. it's the other way around yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Hmm. Yeah, again. It's also an interesting thought. Somebody, please correct me if I'm wrong here. But that in that story, the Samaritan is also like fundamentally, would be considered fundamentally theologically wrong, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not even somebody who's oh, yeah. like even shares the baseline views of what the universe is about mm-hmm. or who God is or what he wants from us. Somebody completely, completely opposed to that and mm-hmm. who actually thinks. You're the wrong and wicked one who believes in the wrong things, and you're mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Well, the hatred went both ways. Yeah. And there's theological differences, and to 
for this for the Samaritan to touch the wounded Jewish man would have been making the wounded Jewish man unclean, even though he needed someone to save him. <laughs> There's so many layers of like trying to get into the context of of like what people might have heard when they first heard the story. Samaritan touched you. It's like, well, what what else are you going to do? You're going to die unless you let this person care for you. <laughs> Yeah. Jesus must have raised the hackles of, of, of a lot of people there, particularly Jews. It, absolutely, um, yeah. By, by making the, the Samaritan the good guy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> must have been disturbed to Jesus for that, I would think. Yeah. Well, I think it was precisely what they didn't want to hear. Yeah. yeah. Can I shift gears? To, okay, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I just was thinking how um, the, your final point about God being the source of pleasure, God having created us as individuals, having all real pleasures and that, that really do fulfill people, mm-hmm. come from him. And yet, why is it that we have such a negative view uh, um, so often of mm-hmm. if you enjoy it, it couldn't be right. You know, God mm-hmm. wants you. And I'm just thinking how, of how I often think of the fact that God called himself as, as, a fa- as our father, a mm-hmm. heavenly father, and I think as a parent, the joy that certainly that we had, and I think most parents have, when they when they notice what their kids love, when they notice mm-hmm. their kids' interest, their, you know, when they're actually are noticing, wow, look what look what God made, look at this little person that God made, and what he's what he or she is good at, what they enjoy, what they like doing, spending their time at, and it's, mm-hmm. it's something that gives the parent pleasure and some anticipation to see how mm-hmm. this is going to develop. You know, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's an excitement and a joy in that, and so, which helps me think, well, why wouldn't, if that's how parent who is, you know, if you know how to, if, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, mm-hmm. if, a, <laughs> if a child asks for, for, a, for bread, you don't give them a, you don't give them a mm-hmm. stone or a snake or yeah. something. Um, scorpion. <laughs> how much more? Yeah, scorpion. How how much more your heavenly father um, would delight in yeah. seeing his children develop to be the people yeah. that they're going to you know that they're going to become and and you know the, the things they collect, the things mm. that they the books they like, the you know the, the enjoyment of being outside and exploring. I think of even just an example, like, it's the same sort of analogy, but as a parent, like, getting the right gift for your kid at Christmas time. Yes, yeah. And, like, and you see that they get it, and, like, they're so excited, and it's just, it was clearly the right, it was like, yes, this was the yeah, right exactly. age appropriate, whatever, it was It was appropriate to them, their their temperament and their personality, and they love it, and they're so excited, and like, that's, that's kind of... You know how disappointing it is to feel like you're given, or at least to give a gift, and then and the kid is like, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So why wouldn't God? Well, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Why right. wouldn't no, God, exactly, our yeah. Heavenly Father, delight in? And, and yeah. so it's really. And really, bec- and really, because the foundation of that claim is that He created everything in creation and called it good. Mm-hmm. So and so, there's Screw Tape's point that yes, we've we've damned many people through pleasures. What he means is we've taken good things that God has given that were supposed to be enjoyed rightly and we've encouraged people to enjoy them in the wrong way or to the wrong degree at the wrong time or whatever it is and 
uh, and have snared people in that way. But the but the thing itself, enjoyed in the proper way, in the right context, is is uh, all of our research has not been able to produce a single one of those. We can't we, we can't produce a pleasure. That's God's territory, but we can encourage people to to enjoy them in the wrong way. And that's yeah. it, and that's it. You know, so so like the yeah. it's the it's the goodness of God's creation and the way in which He's made us to engage with creation, which um, is is fundamentally good. You know, yeah. and, and that's the. I think about, often Tim Keller talks about this word Greek word, which I'll probably pronounce wrong, but epithemia or epithemia or something like that, but meaning over over desire that that yeah. that um, having having our desires, our loves in the right order. So these mm-hmm. legitimate good things, when they become idolatrous, when they become, <coughs> they become God. Yeah, that, that's what Satan wants. Yeah, and that that's what distorts distorts yeah. it. But they're they're good in themselves mm. in the right in the right yeah. order. And that's what this is. This is a to quote Tim Keller because we're talking about Tim Keller now. Yes, <laughs> um, and I think he says this in a bunch of places. But I was listening to some of his sermons the other day, and it's it's uh, talking about idolatry. But like, and, and it sort of touches on like God wants obedience that's love for Him that that's an end in itself, right. and uh, not in order to get something else out of God because it's not actually loving God to say I will love you, God, if. Because whatever whatever follows the if is your actual God. <laughs> That's what you're treating as your God. That's the idol. And you're treating God as a, as a means to that, as a tool that will help you get what you want. So, Lord God, I will serve you if you just... That's the... Fill in the blank. And that's and that's your God. <laughs> and so it's like... Oh. That's really the sort of instrumental use of God for... Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Tom. It says something about pleasure and the more different than is that it is than its design the mm-hmm. better something like that it made me think of culture today mm-hmm. transgenderism and the whole bent where culture is getting more and more bizarre pleasure is getting more and more unnatural and everything is becoming further and further away from God's original design mm-hmm. of how to live mm-hmm. it's really becoming clear yeah, I mean, it's it's been clear for for a long, long time. You've you've chased after something, um, but not in the way that God has has actually designed it. It's, it becomes an endless yeah. losing battle. Yeah, it's really, really sad. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. Elliot. That the term that you hear nowadays that related to this is embodiment. Mm-hmm. That's uh, the way we talk about it. Today, but mm-hmm. I, I'm struck how contemporary what you're talking about mm-hmm. tonight is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it seems there's something like totally relevant on every page of the book. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, the other thing I was going to say in relationship to the question that you, it seems to me one of the things that commands your attention in this is the use of irony. Yeah, I don't think. Talking about angels, it would be hard to be on. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks for coming. Yeah. yeah, that's true, yeah. And and, and some of the, 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 like, biting wit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who knows? I don't I've never spoken to an angel. <laughs> but, yeah. They're scary. It, they're scary, yeah. They're scary, they're scary. They're not, and... Right, yeah. 
and the, 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 the what's that? So probably not snarky. Probably yeah. not snarky. Maybe not snarky. We can probably we can probably say they're not snarky. But the 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 part of the amusing thing about this, as well as all the rest of the profound things, the chilling things, the horrible, you know, like part of what makes it amusing is that it is satire and it is mocking something that's absurd. And so that that's something that you just couldn't do. You couldn't do appropriately with. Mm-hmm. With some an angelic conversation, um, but like the demon is fair game, right? Because yeah, <laughs> particularly the the I didn't really talk about this tonight, but just the grandiose hopes that one day they will finally just beat God. Like like the, the his he vastly overestimates his chances. <laughs> With a little more research, we'll we'll. We'll crack the code and, and, and God will be finished. It's that just, it's, it's really fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. A little more yeah. data. Esther? Yeah. yeah, more data. More data. And more bureaucracy. Yeah. I think there's, yeah, the, another piece, like, why I could see, like, an angelic point of view working is because, like, God himself is the one who grows us up to be like Christ. It's his own Holy Spirit. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like yes, they are involved. We don't we don't actually know very much yeah. about what their role is. Mm. Um but we do know like about Satan and like how that works and that's mm. not how that works necessarily mechanically, but like that that's a reality and mm-hmm. like, imagine like personalities on the other end of like trying to the butthole and abuse and all of that. Mm-hmm. But Right, we we have a kind of direct access to to the Lord Himself. He's, he doesn't he doesn't uh, delegate human growth to His minions. Like it's Him. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, in the back. I wanted to circle back to an earlier point of appearance, as well as uh, the theme of chronological snobbery, uh-huh. and it was mentioned that we may be in a sort of cultural. And I'm not certain that I buy that. Mm-hmm. The reason is, is it doesn't seem... It's hard for me to think as to why sin would be worse in one period of the world than other, outside mm-hmm. of those ebbs and flows that, that mm-hmm. you've mentioned. It, it seems rather, to me at least, and I'm curious what other people think, that the sins and the issues of different societies can be quite different and change over time. Yeah, of course they are. Perhaps it is that with uh, certain social issues, they're more prevalent in our time because of the issues that come with individuality. But I, I certainly don't believe that we have as great a problem with murder as we had 300 years ago, 400 years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't believe we have such severe social problems and disregard for human life as you see among the aspects. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah. I... I I hesitate to believe that we declined from God's original plan relative to the Greeks, who, for all their love of wisdom and rationality, had their own horrible social situation. And just as much as there's chronological snobbery today uh, for 
the things that are new. There has been in the past a very, very harmful chronological snobbery for the past. Mm. See, around the French Revolution, which they said, oh, we need to be like the Greeks. Even mm. if we have to smash everything, yeah. we kill yeah. a lot of people to be like mm-hmm. yeah. And that Sparta was some sort of paradise as opposed to, really, almost worse than 1984. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't buy that we're much more sinful than previous generations. Mm. We're sinful in our own unique mm-hmm. And challenging way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to, to, to the, the whole the whole critique of chronological snobbery is not a claim that uh, society, by definition, is always getting worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. What it is is a criticism of the assumption that the next new thing is essentially be, has to be better than what came before, and that it might be true, it may not be true. <laughs> the fact the fact of the matter is, it's not something you can assume mm-hmm. because yes, societies have in some ways improved and in some ways gotten worse, and, and every society has its own blind spots and its own cultural sins, and, and absolutely. Um, is, but, but the chronological snobbery comes from thinking that we are wiser, we know, smarter, we, are, we know, we are, they didn't know. Yeah. We're automatically wiser and smarter than I, anyone who they, came before, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I, I'm always yeah. reminded of Ecclesiastes, yeah. you know, remember, son. You know, there's no end to the writing of books. Yeah, it's nothing new under the sun. Like everybody, there's been a lot yeah. of books written since then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Emily in the back. Uh, what you said, if it's chronological snobbery to think that new ideas are good, and to forget that people can be deceived now, it's mm-hmm. just as chronological snobbery to assume that what's old is therefore traditional and right, and to forget that. Been deceived in the past too. <laughs> <laughs> right, and and there's actually some things to be thankful for about the present moment. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. It's just it's, it's the whole idea of chronological snobbers. We can't make a rule that apply. You know, <laughs> we have to judge each moment on its own merits, and uh, and not just assume that we're getting better or worse. Yeah. Maybe one more question. I'm starting to lose my voice a little bit. Marty. I was really stung by the first point you made about um, ownership, especially of time. Oh, yeah. Of the idea that, you know... The chapter's the worst. Oh, God, God has given me today. It's my time. And then just all the things that eat up that time and make, and make me feel like I've, you know... I was somehow entitled to 24 hours, or, I mean, I sleep during significant but if your sleep's interrupted, whoa, then oh, that's, yeah, then that's, yeah, even, that's yeah. even more of a denial yeah. of my rights. But that, yeah. that idea of, that is, and that's, I mean, I think that's that's part of our sinful nature that goes back to the fall, but mm. then it's really encouraged by, I mean, just think of all the ads all over the place. And say, you deserve all the things we deserve. Yeah. You, know, you deserve good health. You deserve a great holiday. You deserve to think about mm. yourself first, you know. All this stuff, and it, yeah. just, it just um, underscores what is too easy for us to think because yeah. we're fallen nature. Yeah, the advertising. I mean, advertising depends on creating uh, entitlement in people. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's like you. You work so hard. Do something for you. College. Buy this. Yeah. You know, yeah. you work so hard. You've had. You know, you're awesome. You deserve this soda. <laughs> Like there was a D'Angelo, there was some restaurant soda where it's literally on the big 
disposable cardboard cup is like, you deserve this. And it's just like, how do they know what I deserve or what anybody deserves? Like, I may deserve to get the stone in my face. I may be a scoundrel. Like, you don't know anything about Maybe it's not very good. Maybe it's yeah. terrible. Yeah. Maybe I deserve much better. And that's why we deserve it. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's the, just, the, uh, you're going to get the compensation that you deserve it if you, uh, what was it, uh, you contract us to the, you, you know, you're, you go between, so we're going to get you the compensation that you deserve. Right. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, it's all trying to sell you something. Yeah. yeah. It's all about our entitlement. Yeah. Not yet. That's the idea. Like you will, you will uh, convince the screw tape thing. You convince the person that um, just dwell on their ownership of as much as possible. Like get them to think of them as owning as much as possible, because then they will be uh, forever frustrated and bitter. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>